If you've got a, a Bible with you, you may want to keep that John 3 passage open. We will be referring to at least the first part of it as we um, look through it this morning. I was building some flat pack furniture the other day. And to say that the instructions were complicated is probably a slight understatement. You needed a master's degree in engineering and then probably a little bit more on top of that as well. They were expert in the art, and I like this word, of obfuscation. Have you come across that word? How to make things more complicated rather than clearer. It's a word that we hear used of politicians sometimes. But I wonder whether you've ever had a conversation with somebody and you're talking to another person. You're trying to make yourself really clear, but you can see in the conversation all you're doing is confusing things the things are getting more and more complicated. It's a bit like that flat pack furniture again. I just saw this. I quite like this. It wasn't quite that bad, but still self-assembly was required. But you're talking and you don't understand each other, and things get more and more complicated. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus and Jesus have this phenomenal conversation, but you get the feeling that as Jesus is talking, Nicodemus really hasn't got a clue what he's on about. And they start to sort of talk at cross-purposes. So um, you get into John chapter 3, and there's this man called Nicodemus. And he's a Pharisee. This was part of this law-keeping group. They were very keen on keeping all of the law right to the nth degree. He was part of the Jewish ruling council. In verse 10, Jesus describes him as being Israel's teacher. He's part of the Jewish ruling class. He's probably a wealthy man. And he appears three times in John's gospel. This is the first of his appearances. And the picture that we have at the start of this passage is that Nicodemus is a religious man, a passionate, zealous man, who wants to do the godly thing, but isn't quite sure what it's all about. So he comes to Jesus at night. We're not quite sure why John doesn't tell us, but I think probably the obvious reason is he doesn't want to be seen. So he comes at night and chats with Jesus. And what we get the impression that Nicodemus is thinking is that Jesus is a man who obviously is sent by God because of all the signs and wonders, and he's a teacher, but he doesn't seem to get much more than this at this point. There are many people in our world today who like a lot of what Jesus has to say. When Jesus talks about loving our neighbors as ourselves, when Jesus talks about passion and compassion for the poor, when Jesus talks about the need for social justice, these things still resonate in our society. But following some of the ways of Jesus, following some of his teaching, nitpicking at the things that we like, is not the same as falling on your knees and worshipping Jesus as Lord. The Gospel of John does not allow us that option of just treating Jesus as some kind of good teacher. C.S. Lewis once famously said this about people who claim to do that kind of thing. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says C.S. Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. Now, as Christians, sometimes we can fall into the opposite trap. We can actually worship Jesus as Lord, proclaim Jesus as God, and then ignore much of what he has to say. If Jesus really is Lord, and is the son of God, is the son of man, Jesus the Lord, this is a bit of a cheesy slogan, can't be ignored. Just let me say that again. Jesus the Lord can't be ignored. In verse 3, Jesus' reply to Nicodemus totally throws him. 
They're now talking like this. They're going cross-purposes. He is utterly bemused by the answer. Because in these verses, Jesus explains to Nicodemus how we can enter into relationship with God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Nicodemus gets all confused and concerned at this point, and he gets into practicalities and starts thinking, how on earth can I be born again? This isn't physically possible. What is Jesus on about? And then we get to Jesus' explanation. To be a worshiper of Jesus, to be a Christ follower, to be a disciple, is not just about listening to some of the things that Jesus says. It's not about rule-keeping in a pharisaical way. It's not about trying harder. It's not about being religious outwardly. But it's to come face-to-face with the Son of God, acknowledge Him as Lord and God, get on our knees in front of Him in repentance and faith, and see our own bankruptness, if that's a word, before the Son of God and to worship him as Lord and Savior. To be brought into the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, by the transforming power of the work of the Spirit. Being born again, Jesus calls it. Starting again, starting over. Being made totally, radically, and what's even better, permanently new. You know, all the things that we have that are new in our life now wear out, don't they? You buy a new pair of shoes and they've worn out within however long. You buy a new car and three or four years later you're then thinking, I need another one. It's not like that when you're born again. You are permanently made new in Christ. And being born of water, what does that mean? Well, the most obvious sense is that the being born again by the Spirit is then mirrored in that action of baptism as you go through the waters of baptism. So two things this morning. Today, if you've not been baptized, but you would like to think about baptism, that water part of this, do come and chat to me. I would love to have that conversation with you. If you've not had that joy of being born again, of being made new and permanently new through the saving work of Jesus, again, come and chat to us. Me, Chris, one of the leaders here, we'd love to share with you what it means to start that amazing journey. Well, today we're thinking about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, over the years, I've had a number of people have said to me, you know, as Christians, why do you insist on believing as God in Trinity? How does three in one and one in three add up? It doesn't make any logical sense. And actually, the Bible never uses this word, never uses the word Trinity. Well, the last bit is true. The Bible never uses that word Trinity. It's first used by a man who isn't famous for anything other than using this word, called Theophilus of Antioch. I'm sure you've all heard of him. And that was um, first wrote this word in the late second century AD, about 100 years after the end of the New Testament was being written. But what we find in the Bible, although that word is not used, is the fingerprints of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this passage, John chapter 3, is one of these amazing passages, where we talk about, where it talks about being part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God the Father. And just earlier on in John's gospel, we've had this already said of Jesus, Jesus the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't really escape that, can you? Jesus is God. We've already seen how it's the Spirit, the Spirit of God. The Old Testament uses the Hebrew word ruach, the breath, the very breath of God that brings new life into that which was dead. Down in verse 13, we find that Jesus alone has come from heaven, come from the rule and reign of God himself as God. And then down to 15, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. 
and then to that most famous of verses, John 3, 16, that summarizes the whole lot and says when we believe in Jesus, we enter into that eternal relationship. Now, it took the early church a long time to get their heads around actually what the writers of the Bible were talking about. There were lots of discussions, lots of church councils, lots of things were written by all kinds of people with very complicated names. At times, these um, sort of disagreements came and they were quite unpleasant. But eventually, the church started to realize what the Bible was saying, that God is three in one and one in three. Father, Son, and Spirit are all made of the same substance. There is one God. They are three really distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they are united as one. Each of them is God, and God is each of them, all one and all three. And so what the Bible does is it explains both these things. Look at these two verses, these two passages, one from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the unity of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. See how we don't just get something that stands out on one side as theory. It's brought straight into the practice. Because God is one, love him, serve him, worship him. And then Matthew 28, verse 19. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three in one, one in three. God the Father, the creator, the sustainer, we are to ever worship and glory in his holy name. God the Son, our Savior and Redeemer, who reveals the Father to us, who saves us, who restores us to relationship with the Father through his death and resurrection. God the Spirit, who comforts us, who empowers us to live a holy life. We are called to walk in step with the Spirit, to demonstrate his gifts and his fruit. Now, I could use a load more descriptions that we find in the Bible. But what does this mean for us? What does Trinity that God is three in one, what does it mean for our daily living? Well, this week, the news has been full of some quite shocking revelations, hasn't it? I don't know if you've been reading or watching the news. Just to say that I'm not going to get into politics of this, but Dominic Cummings has been making some quite um, drastic claims, I I would say. I'm not talking about that, but what I do want to talk about is the relationship between Boris and Dom. This relationship that was um, really close over the Brexit referendum, I think I'm fair to say, it's taken rather a turn for the worse. These two who were political allies are now going at cross purposes against each other. That often happens, sadly, in human relationships. And it happens with our relationship with God. Relationships right since the creation of the world in Genesis have been core about what it means to be human. We were made for sharing, for sharing this amazing, beautiful world. And if you can see a window at the moment, look out of it and see the glory of the creation that God has made. We were made to share it, to walk with God in the world that he'd made. We were made to share it with other human beings. Look around if you're with other people at the moment. Have a look at them. You were made to share with other people. We were made for relationship with one another. And yet it all goes horribly wrong. Right at the start of Scripture, it starts to dislocate, and we become broken. And so often our brokenness dislocates relationships. We have discord, we have arguments, we have disagreements. Chris was talking last week about how as Christians we need to, when we do disagree about things that are not the main thing, we need to be able to do it well and do it constructively. But the sad thing is, in our world, so many relationships fall apart. There is so much dislocation. 
If you're in a workplace, work relationships can fall apart. If you're married, your married relationships can be put under huge strain. Parent-child relationships, friendships. And as humans, repeatedly through history, we have failed to provide ourselves, of our own nature, a blueprint for proper relationships. On our own, we just keep dislocating and fragmenting. We can move from relationship to then something that's a bit transactional, where we start to treat somebody else as less than ourselves, where we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, and then to dislocation. Can I encourage us this morning to look at the perfect relationship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and seek to model that in our relationship with God, absolutely, but also in our relationship with each other. God is three persons, but totally unified. Now, say we think about three people. Now, in our house, there are four people. And we don't agree with one another all the time. That may come as a shock to you. We're all in the room today. But if we were to ask any of us, what's your idea of a decent meal? We would all have a different description. What's an idea of a good day out? It would all be different. Where do you want to go on holiday? They'd all be different. We're four people living under one house, but with very different senses of expectations. The Trinity is not three different people living under some heavenly roof, all wanting different things. But they are combined. They are this unity of glory and purpose, the same substance, living in absolute perfection. Over the centuries, people have used a dance to describe the Trinity, three partners moving in perfect unity. Musicians, hymn writers have written hymns and songs to help us appreciate it. We have some of these works of art and ancient Celtic symbols of trying to explain how God um, sort of exists as three in one and one in three. I won't get my egg from over there, but we have the egg that sort of gives that kind of example. We have water, H2O, that exists as water, steam, and ice. I couldn't work out how to do that this morning, otherwise you'd have had that one instead. But at the core of God is relationship, three in one and one in three. How are your relationships today? Are they modeled off God, or are they modeled from something else? How are those relationships with the people who you are closest to? I don't know who they are, but how are they this morning? My experience of life tells me that there are many chances to model relationship, many chances to model the love of God to one another, to want the absolute godly best for other people, to love unconditionally, to care without cost, to submit to one another. All these one anothering phrases that we so often talk about in the New Testament, they're all about modeling the very nature of God. As these last weeks have gone on, as the the lockdown has started to lift, as we've started to see one another, how are we finding our relationships are going as the lid is being lifted on our society? Are we following God's relationship? Or are we actually using our own blueprints? In Nicodemus, in John 3, he misses the whole point. He doesn't yet get it. He mistakes relationship for religion and misses out, at that point, on an amazing new life offered to him by Jesus. God who calls us into the life and sharing that perfect life of God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The call to be born again, born of water and the Spirit. And the call to exist and live and reign with God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever. A couple of things just to reflect on, just before we sing our final song together this morning. What does it mean for you to be born of water 
and the Spirit. Is there anything you need to do on that front this morning? And secondly, just reflecting for a moment on those relationships in your life. Are they, are they reflecting God, whatever relationships those are? And if not, is there anything you need to do to submit to God and his ways?